0: Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm, where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Chat McLean, and today my guest is Alex Moore. His key topic of discussion will be revolved around the demands of working as a strength conditioning coach in the NBA. Currently, Alex is the high-performance manager of the Illawarra Hawks in the NBL. He has almost 20 years of experience in elite sport, bringing a background in both strength and conditioning training and exercise physiology. Prior to the Hawks, he was, was the head strength and power coach of the North Melbourne Kangaroos and Brisbane Lions. Alex has also worked in the States as a high-performance manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers and a strength and conditioning coordinator at the US Ski Team. Highlights from this episode, we discussed how pre-training lifting sessions can be effective in the sport of basketball, the importance for caring for your athletes and being flexible with the program, discussion around the common processes of getting a full-time contract in elite sport, and how networks can assist you, how to manage schedules that have seven games in 10 days in six different cities, and the common trend that most world class athletes have. Before we start this episode, to improve your strength and power and gain a competitive edge this preseason, make sure to hire one of our Prepare Like a Pro coaches and join our individualized coaching package. For more information, head to preparelikeapro.com. Let's get into today's episode with Alex Moore. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for jumping on, mate.
1: Thanks, Jack. Glad I uh, know we've been trying to connect for a little bit, but glad it's, uh, it's finally happened and happy to have a chat and, and talk about my experiences.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to it. You've been recommended highly. And and like you said, we've had a bit of back and forth, but assistance Mm. pays. I'm a big believer of that. And I reckon this will be one of the best episodes yet. So we'll we'll try to do it. No pressure. Take us back to the beginning, mate. At what age did you discover you had a passion for elite sport and and, and strength and conditioning? Yeah, I think probably like
1: most strength and conditioning coaches, I I played every sport under the sun and, and wanted to be a professional and probably wasn't good enough to do it. And then, I mean, I came through in the 90s through university in the 90s and there wasn't There wasn't too many positions. Most of the strength and conditioning coaches when I came through were PE teachers. So playing, you know, sport through school, I took one year off to do a gap year in England. I came back and decided I want to be a PE teacher because I just I wanted to be around sport. And then. I was really lucky my second year of university, I did a prac at the Sydney Swans because Aaron Murphy, my supervisor at, at UTS at the time, was working there and he got me a prac in there and I got in there and said, this is it. This is what I want to do. So from then on, I just had a laser focus on doing everything I could to, to get, into, get into that industry. And at the time, there was only one, pretty much one full-time person. In, in high performance at every, at every club and then there was a secondary person that would come in and do strength or help with the rehab. And so that's how I started out and was lucky enough to get in early. Uh, as the industry, I kind of was part of it when it was, was semi-professional and, and seen it go full professional since then.
0: Yeah, the old the phys ed, phys ed is, I was told, they'll call Yeah,
1: Yeah, 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 exactly right. That was, that was how they were classed at that point and, and, and it was actually true because everybody there was no pathway for sport science you know really early days so most of them were PE teachers that had had an inkling for sport and 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 fitness and then and then went across
0: Yeah, and you mentioned you played a lot of different sports and and the inkling to to travel and have a gap year what inspired you in terms of PE and working in sport while you're over in England was a particular practitioner or is it something that you you spend a day down at a club or take us through I guess for those yeah yeah, I just
1: I I was lucky I ended up I went over to play cricket in Hertfordshire which is a small county outside of London and I got a job at a school as and the PE teacher had left so I I basically just filled in as the PE teacher you know unqualified at that point but just helping out and I just I just played sport six hours a day seven hours a day with the kids and I thought that was (laughs) that was what I wanted to do at that point so yeah. Um, yeah that was the journey. so i really i wanted to play play because i just wanted to play sport the rest of my life so that was kind of why i wanted to do it at, at university yeah and how did you reach out to aaron
0: murphy was that email letter
1: yeah so he was he was one of my lecturers and then i remember at a lecture he had he had mentioned that he was looking for students to go and do we had to do i think it was 180 hours at that point a, a practical and i jumped at it and and luckily got it and then i was you yeah. know the the assistant to the assistant cone picker up, I, you know, for two years, I just ran around and, and set out cones, measured things and, and just helped out in the gym as much as I could. But it was, it was such a great experience just learning from, from, from really good people and also being, being part of professional sport at a really young age, you know, like I was younger than most of the players at that point. So it was really cool to, to be part of it. And, and from that experience, that kind of lit, lit the fuse for me from there. So, sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good segue for the next part, mate, who, who have been some strong influences over your career.
1: Yeah, I, d- I definitely think Aaron Murphy early, he, he got my start. And then from there, I've been really lucky to have some good mentors. And, and I think it's, it's so important for young strength and conditioning coaches to find people that have experience and, and can help them. And, and my whole career, I've, I've been doing it over 20 years now. I, The people that have mentored me are the first people I go to if I have an issue or I have a question. So Lachlan Penfold, who's down at the Melbourne Storm, he was my boss at Brisbane Line and he also had a year in the NBA at Golden State. So I saw him a lot over there, but he's been a a terrific mentor and someone I definitely lean upon. Another one is Troy Flanagan, who's the head of high performance at the Milwaukee Bucks NBA and been there. They won a championship three years ago and he's been there for six years now and he was my boss at the U.S. ski team. So he was the, the big boss, the high performance director at the U.S. ski team, which is a, it's a massive team. They've got 220 athletes um, yeah. and I was a strength and conditioning coordinator. So I was there for six years and, and he's another one that, that I really look up to and, and, and talk a lot. And then, and then finally probably from my time in North Melbourne, just got a really good relationship with Jonas Siegel, who's now with, with tennis and cock and artists and doing, doing his thing there. So yeah, and then they're probably the people that, that I look up to the most in the industry and have
0: learned the most from as well. You mentioned earlier how important it is to have strong mentors. and uh, mm. It sounds like you've still got a connection with these practitioners. Yeah. How, would that, how regularly would you touch base with them and, and problem solve and sort of chew the fat, so to speak? Yeah, like pro- probably once every two months,
1: two or three months. Yeah, wow. it, it, it's more so when, when something comes up that you, you haven't seen. And, and maybe after 22 years, there's, there's little that you haven't seen at that point, but there's definitely times when, when I get thrown curveballs at work and you're like, man, what should I do with this? A lot of it now has more become for positions, like vacancies, job positions. We'll contact each other. So I know a lot of the teams, like in America, NBA teams rarely advertise because we, we did that. My first year in Cleveland, we advertised for an assistant athletic trainer and had over a thousand apps. So yeah, it's-, <laughs> it's impossible to wade through that. So you tend to lean on the people that you trust in the industry to give you referrals for other people or, or young people that they've had. So I'd say most of the time now is, is that I talk to these people is about, hey, we're trying to fill this position or, or, or we're looking for somebody. Do you have any, any ideas? And, that, and that's, that. that's why those networks and keeping your networks and not burning your networks as you go through your career is, is vital because as soon as that happens, you, it's it's really hard to get positions, and it's hard to even be in the in the mix because so many jobs aren't, aren't advertised either.
0: Yeah. Well, if you had to put a percentage on it in your experience, has, has it changed much? I guess would be one question over the last twenty years that that ratio yeah. of jobs that are advertised compared to those that are you know, behind the scenes. And yeah. then yeah, what would you say if there was a split? Yeah, I, I think I think look, they they advertise more now than they did
1: probably twenty years ago, probably because a lot of organisations have to, whether it's government requirements or, or organisational requirements. But I would still say in those, uh, the NBA, for instance, I would say at least 75% of the jobs go unadvertised and they,
0: they, they have people in mind and, and, and that's how they find it. And for those that are studying high-performance sport and they've yet to go through the interview process for a full-time role, but it's something yeah. they're working towards, what would be a typical approach. You've worked it across the, you know, a range of different elite sports over you know, different countries. What would you say is sort of the standard?
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one because it's, it's, the, it's the old adage that a lot of people miss out because they don't have experience, but then don't have the opportunity to get experience. So my advice would be that you just have to grind. You know, you have to spend three to five years grinding and just doing a lot of volunteered position. I, I did the same. I worked through a club rugby team in Sydney for three years, unpaid, two nights a week, full Saturdays. And the reality is, with those types of athletes, that's where you learn the most. You know, university is good, but you have to be on the tools. And and if you're at that level, you can you can afford to you know we all make mistakes, but you can afford to make mistakes and and you know still get through it and learn from those mistakes. Whereas the problem is if if you come into an NBA team and you make a mistake or or you don't have the experience to deal with situations, you you get out of the system really quickly. So I think the the sad reality is there's, there's not that many jobs the, you know there's there's quite a few teams but there's not that many jobs at each team and so what you need to do is make sure that you've you're confident in your abilities and you only get that by by coaching by being a coach and working and trialing and then and then going from there and the, the other thing i would say for me in in positions where i've been where we've tried to employ people is there's particularly in america there's a lot of people that have the same resume so You know, in the US particularly, they've worked at a Division One school. They've done strength, and they've got a little bit of experience in something else in some other area. But what we tried to do is find someone that had a skill set outside that made them stand up. Whether that's a secondary degree in nutrition or an interest in physiology or whatever that interest may be. But if it's just strength training, you're going to find it hard early to get jobs because there's so many people that that can do that. So it's 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 having experience in other areas or having an interest in other areas that you can talk to and, and, and promote yourself at.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. With, with, for those that haven't quite built that second tier or that, for that extra yeah. string to their bow, would you recommend going with what you're most passionate about and what lights you up? Or is it more looking at where the industry is going, you know, maybe data analytics or you know, things where there is a high demand? Yeah, I think to be
1: true to yourself. And if, if you're going to be good at what you do, I think you have, to, you have to push what your passion is. I don't think if your passion strength training and it's not looking at GPS numbers, I wouldn't go into an interview promoting that that's, that's what you want to do. Sure, take an interest in that and know that. But ultimately, I, I don't think then if you got placed in a job where you're just looking at GPS numbers and, and weren't able to do any strength, I don't think that's probably the, the pathway you'd do. So I think Go with what your passion is but get as much experience
0: in other areas outside of your,
1: your specificity to give yourself the best chance to get those positions.
0: Yep. And, and tapping into your mindset early days, hmm. were, you, were you eager to throw yourself in all these different environments or was it something that sort of happened organically, the fact that you worked across different sports?
1: Yeah, I think I was. I think I was just really lucky. My first job was at the Sydney Academy of Sport, which was I had the Waratahs rugby for six months of the year, and I had the Australian Ski Team for six months of the year. So I had this mix of, and it, and I'd worked in rugby and played rugby, but I'd never worked in skiing. So I had this opportunity where I mean, my first day with the Australian Ski Team, I was trying to ski down a hill and had no idea what I was doing, and everybody was laughing at me. But it's it's you grow from those opportunities, and now you know I've had. 14 years, 15 years almost in, in professional skiing. So yeah, wow. now I'm kind of the strength and conditioning expert that people go to. So you have to understand that everybody starts and it's just getting that experience. But I've been I've been super lucky. I've done, you know, basketball, cricket, rugby, AFL, a whole bunch of individual sport athletes. So I think I think you can learn a lot from different sports. And I think people can get pigeonholed. They just want to stay in AFL or they just want to stay in rugby. And they don't see what happens outside of that because some of the stuff that happens in basketball is, is really interesting and really different to the way they run things mm. in AFL. For instance, in basketball, pretty much every team around the world does weights before they do training. And that's in AFL, that, that would absolutely not fly. So, mm. But the players have always done it. The coaches like it because it gets them activated and, and, and that's the way it's done and, and that's the way it works. But you go into the AFL environment and you'd be very hard-pressed trying to find people do weights before, you know, particularly leg like weights before before they run and I realize the running demands are quite high but basketball there's 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 pretty pretty good demands particularly from a from an agility agility perspective
0: yeah and I guess you if you compared it from some of the training sessions volume wise compared to NBA like sometimes they would always marry out if it's a lighter session for football yeah
1: yeah absolutely and and the other one is you you're dealing with athletes that are seven foot one 135 yeah. kilos on a hard court and yeah they you know, they may be running five to six kilometers a game, but there's a lot of impacts and there's a lot of changes of direction and, and decelerations and, and a lot of, like I said, a lot of, a lot of jumping <laughs> on a hard court. So the, the, the thing with those guys is trying to make sure that rather than, you know, volume of high-speed running, it's more changes of direction and, and impacts for those, for those players.
0: And the, the, you touched on it activates them beforehand, the coaches like it. So mm. is that? is it you know is that something that it just if you, there's a feeling there that it actually sets up for a more successful training session if they do
1: yeah exactly right and even games I was shocked when I started the NBA a lot of the teams the guys lift before they play so whether it, it might be a bit lighter on the legs but uh, two hours before the game they'll, there's weight rooms at the arena they'll be both teams will be in the weight room and they'll be doing you know they'll, they'll squat deadlift do a whole bunch of core and upper body they're shorter sessions 20 to 25 minutes but that's that's, uh, that's before the game. And the reality with the NBA, and I know we're going to talk about this leading, leading on from this, but the reality is you can play 110 games a year. So if you don't lift on a ga- game day, you're essentially not going to lift and then you run in a cycle of you lose strength, you have more chance to get injured, you get sore. So they've just adapted. You, you kind of adapt to what you, what you do and what you become. So they are just adapted to doing it and it's, it's I, I was my first... Experience in the NBA, I was, I was shocked that that was happening, but then
0: I understood it by the, time, by the time I'd been in it for four or five months. And were there certain things that they do, whether it be out of range things, like more eccentrics and things like that, that they do mm. after the game or after main yeah. training?
1: Yeah, it just depends. The NBA is really tough because the schedule dictates that you have to be in the city the night before um, your game. So, for instance, if I worked for Cleveland, if we played in Cleveland, and then we had a game the next night in Miami, you don't have time to lift after the game. So you would you'd play in Cleveland. It might be a, a 7.30 p.m. game. Game would finish at 10.30. Plane would leave at 1. You'd land in Miami at four thirty, five 5 o'clock in the morning, and then you'd be rolling out. You'd have a, a team breakfast and, and go through the plays, and then you'd play that next night. So the reality is you, you kind just, of just have to do it. And it's not done at the intensity using the off in the
0: preseason, but you'd be surprised how much lifting the guys do. And with those constraints, if those were uplifted, and the players Mm. could do what the coaches could put in the optimal program from a from yeah for in terms of a holistic program, yeah, you you change it or do you keep it because the (laughs) coaches like it? I think it works pretty good. I think I think like I said, they've adapted
1: to it, and it really it is the best system for what the schedule dictates. It's not, you know, from a. From a physiology point of view, you may think that you know it's, it's better done post, but there's, there's some definitely post-activation potentiation from doing it. And it's just, mm-hmm. at least on the team I was with, it was part of the routine. Everybody did it. And there was time in between. They would go into the gym and then they would go out on the court. You can only have two guys on the court warming up at one time because both teams share the court. So you've only got half of the court and you can't have 15 people shooting at the same time. It's dangerous with balls flying around. So for our team, we would only have two out on the court. So they'd just come in waves for 20 minutes. Over a two-hour period, and, and the better players got
0: to choose when they came, and then you fit, you fit the others around that. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And how would that on this? So it's quite an interesting topic. So mm. how would you sort of layer if you've got a couple of games and travel and everything? When would they get their main sort of lower body hit throughout the weekend season? Is
1: yeah, you try to do or? it. I mean, if you could, let's say, I mean, so. You go through a period, you have to look at the full year schedule, and there's periods where you'll have more focus on, on, on lifting, and there's periods where you just can't. You may, you, so, the worst stretch I did in Cleveland, my second year, we played seven games in 10 nights, and we were in six different cities. So, and the thing with America, it's not a small country. You're jumping on you know, anywhere between a one to five hour flight in between games, and then you, it's a lot of late nights you're getting up. You know, you're going to bed. Sometimes you're going to bed as the sun's coming up. The next day, and then the requirements are that they're playing either that day or or the day after that. So, typically, we would look at the entire year, and then we'd go, "Okay, this is a chance." We'd put this, we'd put the sessions in, but you have to be so flexible in the NBA because mm. the other thing is some of the players may be expecting to play thirty-five minutes, and all of a sudden they're on the bench and don't play at all. So you go straight there and and do it. But the answer is there's no there's no perfect. You just you just you do the best you can with what you have. But typically, we would try to get three to four 25 to 30-minute lifts a week and we'd we'd hit upper body, core and and legs on those three different sessions.
0: And with the coaches, that seven games, the – Rigid on we're playing our best team for the seven games, or would you sort of periodize that? Yeah, it depends. Focus.
1: You know, we were pretty lucky because, because I was we were a really good team. We had a bit more flexibility in the in the season to either rest guys, or you know, make sure they were getting more physical work leading into playoffs or whatever that is. We weren't we weren't scrambling to make the playoffs every year. We, we were always comfortably in, in first or second through the period I have. But for sure, there's there's periods where the coach is like this. this, this series of five games is critical, but the NBA coaches, most of them are ex-players and are used to lifting. So it, it, they would still lift. It's just yeah. a function because the problem is if you go two weeks, because if you're looking for a great spot in the schedule to lift, you'll never lift because there are no great spots. There's just no great spots. So what you, what you end up doing is you just modify your strength sessions based on, okay, this guy's really gassed. He's really tired. Let's just, let's just back off and, and do a little bit less. But like I said, there. They're all adapted to it. They're all, they're all used to it, at least our players were, and, and they're used to doing it. And you've got some that, are, like any sporting team and in life, you've got some are more diligent and, and better at doing than others, and, and you've got
0: your genetic freaks who get away with doing less and, and remain uninjured. And from a programming point of view, like exercise selection, with, mm. like you said, seven-foot athletes, that schedule, yeah. what, what, how did you apply a different program to, I guess, the Australian sort of traditional model in terms of like yeah. maybe box squat in season? whether yeah. they're doing more machines or simple movements or is it yeah take us through yeah, so it's of- tough and and the other one is
1: you're often in a hotel gym or you're in a in an arena gym and you don't have the equipment so a lot of stuff's done with bands whether it be mini bands or or resistance bands like bigger bands but typically For the taller guys, it it just depends individually. We would definitely have guys box squatting, but some guys are so tall and just can't coordinate it. It becomes a risk reward thing. And and the other thing with the NBA is you only have a three week preseason. So, and the turnover is so high. So you might get a kid from Europe that comes in and can barely lift. And so you have, you know, you're not going to teach a guy proficiently to squat or power clean or whatever that exercise is in that period. So you just have. Do get them as strong as you can with what you've got. So, whether that's machine or more body weight stuff, you just have to adapt to each individual. Other, uh, uh, unlike AFL or rugby, you'll see a vast array of different exercises in an NBA team that guys are doing. You might have people doing completely different programs because they might be 34 years old and they've gone through a program or a system that they believe in, and, and they'll come to you on a one year deal. And you're not going to say, Hey, it needs to be in my program. This is the only way to do it. You, of course, you. Meet them halfway. You say, "What's worked for you?" I'll help. I'll help you. You, you get that going, and and I'll, I'll put put my own stuff in as we go. But typically for the tall guys, modified like trap by deadlifts. Normally you go a little bit higher. It just depends on range of motion. You got to watch. Obviously, with really tall guys, you got to watch backs are, are a big issue. Probably one of the biggest issues in is is either back spasms or 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 bony related, you know, stress. So you got to be careful with with total loading. The other thing you got to remember is some of these guys mechanically are not amazing. You know, Weird guys with size 21 feet, you know, and, and, or feet that are so banged up. And if you looked at any basketballers' toes, they're, they're horrendous because they're always smashing into the front of the shoes. So you just need to be, you just need to be flexible. And there's no, there's no one exercise I think you can't do. You just more have to be careful on, on each individual and, and, and properly run your eyes over them when they're training and make sure they're, they're doing everything with great technique.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a few things you mentioned there that sort of spring to mind in terms of like the unique, obviously three-week preseason, and then guys that are, you know, how, how much changeover there is on the list and mm. there's that you hear about how everyone has their own team of support staff over there. So how would you manage that as a, as a manager in terms of if they've got their own guy, like you said, meeting them halfway, but would yeah. you ever have like their own personal trainer in sessions while the group's training or is that always yeah. done behind the scenes? No,
1: we, well, it depends on the team. Some teams do. And, and it's really up to the management of the team whether they do that. I mean, we, ha- we had big-name players and we had some of them had their own strength coaches, but they were employed by the organization. So they were part of the organization. Uh, yeah. So, and I think that works really well and they integrated with, the, with how they've done it. And if you've got a 35-year-old player who's you know, one of the best players in the world, of course, whatever they've been doing, they should continue doing it. So you'd be naive to think... Go in and change their program and, and, and make it great. So, I've heard of other teams that it's just a free for all and there's a whole bunch of different strength coaches, but we, we, we definitely didn't have that. And everyone was employed by, by the organization. And then, in terms of getting new players, because you, you can get a new player, you can meet a player at the arena that you had, you know, someone gets traded and two days later, another player turns up at the arena and you meet them an hour and a half before the game uh, and they're, then they're playing for you. So, there's very little time to, you know, it's, it's more a deal like Gatorade or water and let's just go from there for the game. So, and then of course, if they've, if they've said, I've got a guy that I train with in Atlanta and, and this is the method that I work, so then you go, okay, you'll talk to them, instigate that initiation because the athlete ultimately, particularly in the NBA, they, they are their own business and it's big money and, and they'll do whatever they think is, is best for them. So you, you need to make sure if you want buying with that athlete, you have to you have to go through that process. And and the other thing is realizing that sometimes that may be the best thing for that athlete. So you need to find that find that that delicate balance.
0: Hey there. Hope you're enjoying this episode with Alex Moore. We're just gonna take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with Ben Darwin. When did you find out that you had a passion for either coaching or or analysis when it comes to professional team sports?
2: Obviously, it came really off the back of my playing experience. I was actually saying to someone yesterday, sometimes I wish I'd actually coached and then played because coaching gives you a great sense of of what you actually require from people. And also, I think when you start coaching, you realise that most players are just kids, basically, in adult bodies. But I, I, because of my injury... I, I retired at 28, and yeah. so I still felt like I had something left in the tank to give, and I really didn't know anything about analysis too much, except I have a sort of inquisitive mind. Mm-hmm. I also didn't know until further down the track that I actually have ADHD, yeah. and ADHD sort of is something that I, I see as a huge advantage. I think it's great, but it helps you to think in a, in a sort of an analytic way and think of, think of things in terms of the, the big picture. Yep. and I'd always wondered about as a player why it it never made sense to me about why Australia was good at rugby. It didn't make right. it didn't make sense yeah. from a logistical perspective, just in terms of how many people we had playing, the game. and and it was never really known by the by the players, to be honest with you. And then also too is that at different times I had coaches that I didn't think were that great, but they were very successful.
0: To hear more from Ben Darwin, make sure to scroll to episode 20 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to the rest of the episode with Alex Moore. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Something you mentioned earlier is how often jobs are sort of uh, successful applicants come through inner networks rather than sort of publicly advertised like in other industries. How how common is it for Australians? You mentioned Lock and Penfold that worked Gold State Warriors, for yourself, but how how many Australian coaches have sort of worked in the NBA over the last sort of decade? Yeah. So it's, I think, I don't know of anyone that
1: was in, I think I might've been one of the first in there. I started in 2013 and there was, when I started, there was no Australians. And then four or five years later, there was a ton. But a lot of them came through the networks of, of the first person over there. So Troy at Milwaukee, they've had a lot of Australians through there. Troy was at the US ski team and a lot of his staff have come from the US ski team. And a lot of the staff that we had at the US ski team, have ended up at different teams. So now, I mean, I don't, I don't keep track of it, but I would say probably a third of the teams have at least one Australian on staff, whether it be oh, wow. the medical and physio or, or strength and conditioning. But it definitely, it definitely wasn't like that when I started, but it, it proliferated, proliferated very quickly. So
0: Yeah. And that's obviously yeah. due to success, like coaches and players are trusting more Aussies doing that type of work now?
1: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that's, that's, that's the indication. I, the NBA is a little bit of a copycat league. So I think a couple of teams do it and then everybody else tries to copy it. And then whether that's a British person in five years time, and then there's a lot of those. But I think generally Australian sports science has a really good reputation and has a good, a good background in, in making sure that athletes are, are treated really well and, and, and given good programs with, with a lot of care. And I think that's, that's, that's come at the same time. Some of the best coaches I've worked with are are the American strength coaches, really diligent, amazing coaches. I think Australian strength and conditionings are are technically very good. And I think there's a lot to learn from some of the American coaches because whilst they may not have the scientific understanding, I think the way that they have the ability to get athletes to do things and to buy into the program is elite. And at Cleveland, our strength coach Derek Millander was, was unbelievable. He could work with, with anybody and have them you know, believe in that this was the program. So I think that's, that's something that the American they, they, they grow up with a real culture, uh, co- coaching culture. You know high school coaches have prof- high schools have professional coaches, you know coaching football teams and professional strength coaches. So most of those sports scientists have grown through learning how to coach properly. so.
0: Yeah, sure. And then in terms of demand on a strength edition coach working in the NBA, you mentioned mm. something that sprung out of me in terms of like seven games in ten days yeah. I mean, in six cities. Yeah. There's not a lot of life outside yeah. of basketball. So yeah. like with, that, with that going on, it's a real bubble. Yeah. Uh, how do you manage your, your workload and yeah, life balance? And, you know, if it's it is, it's really tough and, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not crying for you. It's an
1: amazing job. It's one of the best jobs I've ever had. It's so exciting. You're, you, you know, you're on court with some of the best athletes in the world. I, I, I loved it. I did it for five years and it was, you know, it's one of the best jobs I've ever had. But it is demanding. There is no doubt. It's it's once you're in it, you're in it. And the scrutiny on the team, particularly Cleveland at the time, you know, we we had some of the best players in the world on the team and a lot of pressure to win a championship. And you cannot get away from it. You turn the radio on in your car and and you listen to it. And everybody, all your neighbors know who you are and what you do. And and everyone at the you know, your kids' school is the same. So but the actual the actual schedule is is really tough. So it's an eighty two game season, but if you know if you throw in preseason games, so you can play six to eight preseason games, and often they might be overseas. So you could play. We played one year in Brazil. We, you know you can play in China, and then once you get to the playoffs, the playoffs can go for twenty eight games. So the actual playoffs is more games than an AFL, you know, or, or an NBL season. So that alone, two months of that pressure is a lot, and there's a lot of playing flights, and it's 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 luxurious travel. You have, you know, we had our own plane. You you each have your bed on your plane. There's tables. It's really cool. But you do get to a point where you don't want to get on a plane because you're just traveling that much. And it it just feels, I think the best way to describe the NBA travel schedule, if you're traveling with the team, it just feels like you jet lagged the whole time. You kind of wake up in a hotel room and it takes you kind of, you know, 30 seconds to calibrate which city you're in and, and, and what's happening that day. At the same time, really, you know, Cool opportunities. You get to you get to travel the US and and you know, meet a lot of people that you ordinarily wouldn't. But the other thing is for us, we would play we would we went to the final for four straight years against Golden State. And then you think you just when you're ready for a break, it doesn't come because the draft is three days later. So all of a sudden you've got to do all these workouts for all the draft kids that are coming in. And then summer league hits you a week later and you've got to go to Vegas for two weeks and then I worked with one of our players over the summer. So I just traveled wherever he went. So we'd be in LA or we'd be in the Hamptons or, and then so it is very demanding and it was tough for me because I had three young kids at the time. Um, And so it's, it's a very hard thing. And and part of the reason that, well, the the reason that I left the job in the end is I just couldn't, I couldn't maintain family life and that life. I was, I was just missing too much of, of my family's life. I might, My final year, I was on the road for two hundred and ten nights in the year, so that included the summer. And I missed of the five people in my family, I missed everybody's birthday, including my own. In terms of being at home, and I missed Christmas and Thanksgiving, which which is basically everything. So I just made that I made that decision that you know five years was 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 plenty, and it was it was an unbelievable experience. But yeah, it's the the typical. The typical response I got because quite a few Australians started the years after me and I would always tell them they would, they would start the first season and you'd see them in November when the season starts. And they're like, this is amazing. This is awesome. Yeah, I said, come, talk, come talk to me in February and you'd see, these, you'd see these three coaches in February just so tired and so delicate and they're like, oh man, there's 30 games to go. And I'm like, yeah, you'll be all right. You just, you just got to get used to it. So. And you need the biggest trait. I could say for someone working in the NBA or, or working in a sport that has that demands is you have to have a personality that is durable and it's consistent. You can't, you can't be up and down. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fly in those. You've got a small, in, small crew of people and you need people that emotionally can stay consistent. You know, the highs aren't too high and the lows aren't too low. And then you also just have to be durable. You just have to grind your way through it. And it, at the same time, I sound like I'm complaining. It's 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 an unreal opportunity. It's an amazing experience, but you know, you just you just have to be willing to to make those sacrifices.
0: Hundred percent. No, thanks for yeah. for yeah providing an insight. It's a yeah unique experience, and and certainly no doubt there'll be a few SNCs listening in or physios that yeah, aspire to do it. So to be able to hear firsthand how how it is, you can probably appreciate maybe someone that's going through the grind now that work capacity is hopefully going to transfer into to the top level it doesn't stop when you.: yeah. uh, yeah.
1: goes to that level keeps, <laughs> yeah it does yeah, if you get to that level you yeah you're you're uh, your phone's on all night long let me tell you you get a lot yeah. of 3am calls from coaches or, or medical staff so
0: but for one for the, the athletes listening in developing mm. athletes what did you learn from the world-class athletes that you worked with at the top level in terms of their mindset and and work rate, work ethic
1: yeah, I think. Look, I was lucky. We had we had some unbelievable athletes. I think, I think the biggest the biggest thing I took away from the really the great NBA players is they just love the game. They absolutely love basketball, and it's crazy. You'll see as much basketball as you play. You'll get on a bus after a game, and they'll be watching other games. And they're just so passionate about that particular game. And I think to to really be the difference between the good player and the amazing player is they just they just fall in love with the sport, whatever that sport is. And, and, and that's something I've seen in every sport that I've worked with. And the other thing that I think the really great athletes have to fall in love with training as well, because the reality is to get great, you have to embrace strength training and conditioning training, and you have to be passionate about that. So amongst the really amazing athletes that I've been lucky enough to work with across a range of different sports over the years. I could barely think of any that just don't love training and, and are really consistent with their training, not just their sport, but actual the physical training. Because you can't you can't get away with it. You don't you don't build durability unless you spend time in the weight room and conditioning and on your body and, and spending money. You know whether that's getting massage or or anything else. So yeah.
0: And you mentioned as well, like one of the athletes you travelled with. Obviously, built yeah. a strong relationship with that yes. player. Um, yeah. and you were one of the first if not the like Aussies that were in in this sort of caper H- how did you go yeah. about building buy in when i imagine early on they would have been judging you and working out who is this Aussie guy and you know such- Yeah 100% i think i think regardless
1: of the level whether you're a club football team or in the NBA or in the Premier League soccer is you have to care about the athlete and genuinely care about that athlete and and they they know whether you do or not they know whether you're there you know to to be part of the show or whether you genuinely want them to get better. And I think that that only comes through spending time, building that relationship and doing everything you can to make them better and listening to them as well. I think often, often we think we know everything and an athlete's trying to tell you something and you, you keep interrupting them. I think often you just need to hear them out. And, and then, you know, who, who am I to say that what the best in the world in another sport is doing is wrong. I mean, I, I don't think just because I have a, a background in strength and condition doesn't mean that I know everything and, in our industry, it's a young industry. You know, professional strength and conditioning in Australia is, is barely 20, 25 years old. So, and I could think of multiple things I've done, you know, even five years ago that I wouldn't do now because the science evolves and 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 we go, man, uh, maybe we shouldn't have done it like that. But it, it, you, you make the best decisions of what you have at the time. But I think ultimately, it's it's building trust and building those relationships, and and you have to be a good person. That's the ultimate that's the ultimate thing. If you're going to spend a lot of time with a person like I was with Cleveland, you know, I live with this player and his girlfriend. It's you, you have to be a, a good human being and, and also fun to be around. And I think also athletes want people that are level and also really excited to train because if, if I'm doing a training session, I want the person that's training me to be really pumped and, and excited to do it rather than coming in and, you know, being a bit flat. So.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, mate. And from, from the flip side for now, injury is obviously not a place where athletes want to be. They want to be playing their sport. What do you believe yeah, very important are important skills for strength and conditioning coaches or physiotherapists in a rehab role working with long-term injury? Yeah, I think,
1: I think the best piece of advice I ever got was from Bill Knowles, who's an athletic trainer. He does a lot of the ACLs. A lot of, a lot of the AFL and rugby league players have gone out to see him. At, and he told because he'd worked with, with one of the skiers that I worked in the US, he said, the most important thing in rehab is to get them to bed tired. And that resonated with me because too often, you know, someone's, someone comes in and they hurt themselves and, and the reality is for a professional athlete, that's that's, their, that's that's what their career is. That's what they're passionate about. That's what they want to do. That's where their money comes from. And all of a sudden, that's in jeopardy or that's taken away from them. And it can be a pretty lonely and dark place, even if you're on a team because it's sometimes in a team, it's even worse because you see everyone doing what you want to do and you're not able to do it. So. I think the thing that Bill really stressed is that, like, just because you've got a hamstring injury, you can still train, you can still do things. So, I think we don't often in rehab do enough training, obviously, working around the site and making sure the conditioning's done. So, and his whole adage of getting them to bed tired is like, you know, there's no reason they should come in and just spend 30 minutes on a physio table and spin the bike for 30 There's so much more they can be doing and getting better at. So, everyone that I've rehabbed, we've really focused on, okay, we're looking at this set time period. What are we going to get better at? You know, It's your hamstrings, but what else are we going to improve here? And how are we going to do that? And let's come back with the level of conditioning that you've never had before. And from that, ultimately, most athletes love training and they love training hard. And, and when they're training hard and they're tired, they sleep better, they think less, and they're happy to be around. So I think, I think t- what I've seen is a lot of people underdo rehab. They don't, they don't do enough work and they don't spend enough time with them. And I, I, I totally get... If you're on a big team and you've got 45 people, it's hard to do that. But the best rehabs I've, I've had personally with mine is the ones that I actually, I had the ability to spend four or five hours with them every day and, and, and make sure that everything we were doing was, was right. And then I individualized it to what that specific injury was. So. Mm-hmm.
0: And what about highlights made over your career? Uh, I've yeah. a fair few, but what spring to mind that you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, I've been I've been lucky. You know what? I've been on I've been on really good teams and I've been on bad teams. So I think I think someone said to me once, the best strength coach just picks the best team in terms of results. And because we always we always look at the best team and think, who you know, whoever the strength and conditioning coach, they must be a genius. But often, you know, talent talent wins out invariably. I mean, I, there's a few highlights in my career. I mean, definitely 2016, we won the NBA championship. That was that was just an unbelievable opportunity. And, and Cleveland had never won before. So. You know, four days later they had a parade, and there was one and a half million people in a a city of three hundred and fifty thousand people for the parade. And you know, two months later, we you know we got a championship ring, and we got to go to the White House, and Obama was there, and Biden was the the vice president. So some of the experience I've had in that was amazing. Also, you know, when I was at US ski team and the Australian ski team, I was lucky enough to train some Olympic gold medalists. So being there at the Olympics and, and watching someone fulfill their dreams is fun. But as much as those. I wouldn't say that they're, they're the most obvious ones, I think, to say that are the highlights, but I think the most satisfying ones are the other are people that probably nobody's ever heard of, you know, that it was the kid that did three ACLs and finally got back to play. You know, it was, it was for me at North Melbourne, you know, I work with Majak Dor working back from, from his accident and, and seeing him, you know, over this 18-month process getting back to playing footy from, from some significant injuries, significant enough that, Early days, we probably thought, you know, he he he'd, he wouldn't be running, let alone playing footy. And and his first game back up on the Gold Coast, he kicked a goal at the end, and we ended up. The team was just it was it was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. Like I was, we were all on the bench crying. It was it was it was so magnificent because I'd seen what it had taken and how hard it was for him to work back to that. And so being there and seeing the fulfilment of of him getting back on was just it was it was just magic. And I don't it it. it, it it may sound like BS, but I, I, I wouldn't trade that for a championship like because that's the stuff that really makes a difference. And, and it, it's the same with this trans ski team I can remember. In 2006, Torino, Dalbeck-Smith, our mogul skier won gold medal. But we also had a young kid who got 11th. And I had as much satisfaction in him getting 11th as we did the other kid getting the gold medal because I'd seen what it had taken him 11th was an unbelievable result for him and he'd skied out of his, his skin. But I'd seen he was, coming in, he was coming in at 5.30 in the morning and training because he had to work full-time. So I'd seen the four years of work that had taken to him. So often I think it, it, it's easy and glamorous to say, well, you know, Olympic gold medal, NBA championship, whatever that. But deep down, I, I wouldn't trade that for some of the experiences I've had just,
0: just on a human level and getting people back to doing what they, they want to do. And on the flip side, challenges, what, what are some major challenges you've faced? And- oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had a lot. I mean, definitely working in a lot of different sports and also I've been
1: at teams with a high turnover. But having different coaches is a challenge because you have to reinvent yourself. So being at teams where you've had a different coach you know, every two years, every year, consistently over a period of time, it, it, it becomes hard because you have your philosophy and then every coach has their own philosophy and hopefully you sit down and, and come up with a mutual understanding that you want to get that. But you know, over the years, I've had coaches that have very similar philosophies to me, and I have coaches that have completely different philosophies. So the challenge is to find a way to get the athletes you know, t- to the top level, and uh, that may come across different philosophies. And often with strength and conditioning, you can be in a job with a coach you love and you have a similar philosophy and, and the coach leaves or the, or the coach, you know, gets fired, which is inevitable in this sport. And then someone comes in with a completely different philosophy. And so you have to be a little bit of a chameleon and be able to adapt to that. And, and the reality is it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it, it just doesn't, it doesn't mesh and either you're gone or the coach is gone. So it, it's just how it is. That's, that's definitely
0: probably, I'd say, the biggest challenge on know. that one. In, yeah. in yeah. America, is your yes. contract connected to the coach? Is it, or is it, general, is it, has it sort of? Yeah. So in basketball, your contracts for the performance team is connected with the general manager.
1: And then the, the head basketball coach is connected with the assistant coaches. So typically, what happens is the general manager hires all the performance staff and the medical staff. And the coach, when a new coach comes in, he'll generally, they get rid of all the other coaches from the previous regime and then the coach will bring in his own people. So I mean, as successful as, I, as we were in Cleveland, I had three coaches in, in, in five years and I had, I had three different GMs over that period as well. And so I was just lucky that the general managers, the general managers that got employed at, at Cleveland after the previous one had either left or been fired were internal and, and they knew they knew me and they knew our staff and, and wanted to keep us on but it's i've seen some of the best the best strength and conditioning practitioners of you know in the world get fired just purely on circumstance they may be there and you know a general manager changes and the new gm comes in and, and brings his own people is and and you just have to you have to accept that that's part of the industry mm. same as coaching coaches are the same thing you can and the other reality is if you're at a bad team and you don't have a lot of talent, the chances that you're going to get fired are probably higher than if you're at a team that's winning So, because winning can hide a lot as well. For
0: sure. Yeah, we'll move into the uh, get-to-know-yourself segment yes. on the personal side. So that's yeah. later on. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fa- Favourite inspirational quote or, or life motto? Do you have, one? Do you have I
1: don't, one? I don't know if it's inspirational, but I think I really like don't let perfect be the enemy of good mm-hmm. in terms of I think sometimes as practitioners – we try, we spend too much time on the details and we try to get everything absolutely perfect and we miss the biggest picture or the bigger picture. So, you know, we may have a, a strength program and you've read, you know, it's a, it's a squat progression and you've read every Russian or German training regime and built in this thing and you spend so much time on it, you're not in the gym with the athlete watching them train. So I think that's just an example. Or, you know, the classic is... We get so fixated on GPS numbers and you've got six people huddled around a GPS screen looking at the GPS screen and you've got an athlete running across the field with a limp and nobody picks it up because we're so fixated on putting objectivity and, and quantification to things that we actually lose that art. So I think often the reality is even at the highest level is things go wrong and you know nothing's perfect. So I think what you have to do is put the best program in you can at the time and realize that we should strive for perfection, but it's absolutely unachievable in professional sport. And so you have to be okay sometimes with, with okay and, and good instead of you know, trying to run this regime and, and, and maybe just missing the big picture, maybe missing the whole idea of the, what the training process is about.
0: Yeah, it's something that uh, seems to be consistent all the way through how important it is to be adaptable uh, that you found in oh, your career. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about in your work life? Do you have pet peeves, anything that? makes you angry i think i'm too old to get angry but I, I think i think when athletes and strength and conditioning coaches
1: just get away jump on an idea so you know over my career i've seen so many different you know we've had crossfit we've had the polarized training we've had sweet spot training we have had so many different variations of training i think everyone's always looking for the latest and greatest and that's coaches. And, and I've been guilty of that before that's coaches as well as athletes. But I think if you're always jumping from one training philosophy to the next training philosophy, you end up not really building anything. And I think the reality is the really successful training and you look at the really good athletes, often their training is pretty simple, but they, tra- they do it really well. So, they spend a lot of time, you know, doing conditioning and, and they do the basic strength exercises and they build it from there. Whereas sometimes, you know, you'll have 19-year-old kids that haven't been training for very long and they're looking for some amazing training methodology that they've seen an NFL player doing and that's the way to go. Whereas they're actually missing, you know, the whole point of training and, and just keeping it simple. And, and the best programs I've seen are, are, are quite basic.
0: And what, what about your favorite way to spend a day off when, when you get one? Yeah, I think uh, definitely with the, as much travel as I've, I've done, it's nice.
1: I'm, I'm originally from Wollongong, so it's, I was really fortunate that you know, I could find a job. You know, there's only a team, the, the Dragons in rugby league and, and, and the Hawks in basketball the only teams here. So I think being home after you know, essentially being on the road for 20 years is really nice. So I, I think on my day off, I'd like to be home in my home gym probably lifting and, and, then, and then watching the kids play sport.
0: And favorite holiday destination? Well, I've got a few. I mean, probably Wollongong at the moment just because it's,
1: you know, it's, it's a beautiful spot. But I think it's definitely going to be sports-centric. If, I could, if you could find me a spot where I could ski in the morning, ride my bike at lunchtime, and then go to the gym in the evening, and the whole time in between that spend it at the beach, that would be my ideal location. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, oh, well, I know that doesn't exist, but yeah, generally some, somewhere has been active. I think, I think if I had to pick a spot, I'd say Northern Italy. And where yeah. I could ride my bike and, and ski as well. So
0: Yeah, there'll be a world at some point where that will be possible. Hopefully, yeah. It might be it might be virtual. So <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole new podcast. Yes. Yeah. Right, well, thank you so much for for jumping on, Alex, and sharing with us your your stories and, and you know, I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. So and you've definitely left a fair few out there for us, not only for coaches that want to work in lead sport, but also for, for athletes. What are you excited about for two thousand twenty two? You've mentioned, you know, it's been twenty years since you have been back home. Yeah. That, yeah, I think exciting. I think yeah, it's yeah, being, being back home, I think also we're
1: fortunate. Next week the road I'm I'm a big cyclist, like I like cycling. I'm I'm the wrong size for it, but we got the world championships in Wollongong next week. So I'm I'm super excited. We're actually we have to go to Darwin for a preseason tournament, but we, we make it back for the for the women's and the men's race the following weekend. So I'm I'm super excited for that and and they actually go, they ride
0: right by our house. So we can just sit out the front yard and, and, oh, and watch good. them go. So yeah, yeah. Really excited about that. Awesome. And I know you've mentioned off air, you're not a social media man, but if anyone wants to hit you up for a question or something that, that you've tickled their fancy over the, the listening to the podcast, is there a way that they can get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, they can't find me, which is which is, you know the way I want it to be. So I'm, I tend to be a ghost. Yeah, I resist it. <laughs> Maybe I've been fortunate enough that I got in the industry before social media, so I've built enough contacts. But no, I don't. I don't have any social media at all. So probably the best way they could reach out to be Laura Hawks, and then they could find me that way. But
0: I tend to I tend to try to try to fly under the under the radar as much as I can. Yeah, very good, mate. Well, yeah, thank yeah. you so much for jumping on and. For those that have tuned in live as well, make sure to watch the whole recording. As soon as we finish this live show, the recording will be on our YouTube and we'll post it on our podcast next Wednesday. Our next live chat is with Jasper Fletcher. He's a Brisbane Lions father and son prospect for the 2022 draft and that will be on Tuesday at 4 p.m. So I'll see you guys then. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Columbia Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up?
3: Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then
0: game changes,
3: changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah.
0: Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the strength and conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll hand it over to you, Rama, to, to ask your question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks,
4: um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty
0: of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm.
4: Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah. So I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much, um, when I was younger, um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spent a lot of my time, um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts,